Works of Christ in America by Cotton Mather The voyage to New England which produced the first settlement of New Plymouth with an account of many remarkable and memorable providences relating to that voyage. A number of devout and serious Christians in the English nation, finding the reformation of the church in that nation according to the word of God and with the design of many among the first reformers, to labor under a sort of hopeless retardation, did in the year 1602 in the north of England enter into a covenant in which expressing themselves desirous not only to attend the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ with the freedom from human inventions and additions, but also to enjoy all the evangelical institutions of that worship. They did like those Macedonians that are therefore by the Apostle Paul commended, give themselves up first to God and then to one another. These pious people, finding that their brethren and neighbors in the Church of England as then established by law, took offense at these their endeavors after a scriptural reformation, and being loath to live in the continual vexations which they felt arising from their nonconformity to things which their consciences accounted superstitious and unwarrantable, they peaceably and willingly embraced a banishment into the Netherlands, where they settled at the city of Leyden, about seven or eight years after their first combination. And now in that city this people sojourned in Holy Church of the Blessed Jesus for several years under the pastoral care of Mr. John Robinson, who had for his help in the government of the church a most wise, grave, good man, Mr. William Brewster, the ruling elder. Indeed, Mr. John Robinson had been, in his younger time, as very good fruit has sometimes been before age has ripened it, soured with the principles of the most rigid separation, and in the maintaining of which he composed and published some little treatises, and in the management of the controversy made no scruple to call the incomparable Dr. Ames himself, Dr. Amiss, for opposing such a degree of separation. But this worthy man suffered himself at length to be so far convinced by his learned antagonist that with the most ingenuous retraction he afterwards wrote a little book to prove the lawfulness of one thing, which his mistaken zeal had formally impugned several years, even until 1625, and about the fiftieth year of his own age continued he a blessing to the whole church of God, and at last when he died he left behind him in his immortal writings a name very much embalmed among the people that are best able to judge of merit, and even among such as about the manners of church discipline, were not of his persuasion. Of such an eminent character he was, while he lived, that when Arminianism so much prevailed as it then did in the low countries, those famous divines Polyander and Festus Homius employed this our learned John Robinson to dispute publicly in the University of Leyden against Episcopius, and the other champions of that grand chokeweed of true Christianity. And when he died, not only the university and ministers of the city accompanied him to his grave, with all their accustomed solemnities, but some of the chief among them, with sorrowful resentments and expressions, affirmed that all the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ has sustained a great loss by the death of this worthy man. The English Church had not been very long at Leyden before they found themselves encountered with many inconveniences. They felt that they were neither for health, nor purse, 
nor language well accommodated, but the concern which they most of all had was for their posterity. They saw that whatever banks the Dutch had against the inroads of the sea, they had not sufficient ones against a flood of manifold profaneness. They could not, with ten years' endeavor, bring their neighbors particularly to any suitable observation of the Lord's Day, without which they knew that all practical religion must wither miserably. They beheld some of their children by the temptations of the place, were especially given in the licentious ways of many young people, drawn into dangerous extravagancies. Moreover, they were very loath to lose their interest in the English nation, but were desirous rather to enlarge their king's dominions. They found themselves also under a very strong disposition of zeal to attempt the establishment of congregational churches in the remote parts of the world, where they hoped they should be reached by the royal influence of their prince, in whose allegiance they chose to live and die, at the same time likewise hoping that the ecclesiastics who had thus driven them out of the kingdom into a new world, for nothing in the world but their nonconformity to certain rites, by the imposers confessed indifferent, would be ashamed ever to persecute them with any further molestations at the distance of a thousand leagues. The reasons were deeply considered by the church, and after many deliberations accompanied with the most solemn humiliations and supplications before the God of heaven, they took up a resolution under the conduct of heaven to remove into America the open regions whereof had now filled all Europe with reports. It was resolved that part of the church should go before their brethren to prepare a place for the rest, and whereas the minor part of younger and stronger men were to go first, the pastor was to stay with the major till they should see cause to follow. Nor was there any occasion for this resolve and any weariness which the states of Holland had of their company, as was basely whispered by their adversaries, Therein, like those who of old assigned the same cause for the departure of the Israelites out of Egypt, for the magistrates of Leyden in their court, reproving the Walloons, gave this testimony for our Englishmen. These have lived now ten years among us, and yet we never had any accusation against any one of them, whereas your quarrels are continual." In quote. These good people were now satisfied. They had as plain a command of heaven to attempt a removal as ever their father Abraham had for his leaving the Chaldean territories, and it was nothing but such a satisfaction that could have carried them through such, otherwise insuperable difficulties as they met with. But in this removal, the terminus ad quem was not yet resolved upon. The country of Guiana flattered them with the promises of a perpetual spring and a thousand other comfortable entertainments. But the probable disagreement of so toward a climate to English bodies, and the more dangerous vicinity of the Spaniards to that climate, were considerations which made them fear that country would be too hot for them. They rather propounded some country bordering upon Virginia, and to this purpose they sent over agents into England, who so far treated not only with the Virginian company, but with several great persons about the court, to whom they made evident their agreement with the French Reformed churches, in all things whatsoever, except in a few small accidental points, that at last, after many tedious delays, and after the loss of many friends and hopes in those delays, they obtained a patent for a quiet settlement in those territories, 
and the Archbishop of Canterbury himself gave them some expectations that they should never be disturbed in that exercise of religion at which they aimed in their settlement. Yea, when Sir Robert Nanton, then Principal Secretary of State to King James, moved His Majesty to give way that such a people might enjoy their liberty of conscience under His gracious protection in America, where they would endeavor the advancement of His Majesty's dominions, in the enlargement of the interests of the gospel, the king said it was a good and honest motion. All this notwithstanding, they never made use of that patent, but being informed of New England, they diverted their design, thereto induced by a number of reasons, but particularly by this, that the coast being extremely well circumstanced for fishing, they might in this have some immediate assistance against the hardships of their first encounters. Their agents sent against and over to England, concluded articles between them and such adventurers as would be concerned with them in their present undertakings, articles that were indeed sufficiently hard for those poor men that were now to transplant themselves into a horrid wilderness. The diversion of their enterprise from the first state and way of it caused an unhappy division among those that should have encouraged it, and many of them hereupon fell off. But the removers having already sold their estates to put the money into a common stock for the welfare of the whole, and their stock as well as their time spending so fast as to threaten them with an army of straits, if they delayed any longer, they nimbly dispatched the best agreements they could and came away furnished with a resolution for a large tract of land in the southwest part of New England. All things now being in some readiness, and a couple of ships, one called a Speedwell, the other the Mayflower, being hired for their transportation, they solemnly set apart a day for fasting and prayer in which their pastor preached to them upon Ezra 8.21. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us, and for our little ones, and for all our substance. After the fervent supplications of this day, Accompanied by their affectionate friends, they took their leave of the pleasant city, where they had been pilgrims and strangers now for eleven years. Delft Haven was the town where they went on board one of their ships, and there they had such a mournful parting from their brethren as even drowned the Dutch spectators themselves and standing on the shore in tears. Their excellent pastor on his knees by the seaside poured out their mutual petitions to God, and having wept in one another's arms as long as the wind and the tide would permit them, they bade a deuce. So sailing to Southampton in England, they there found the other ships come from London with the rest of their friends that were to be the companions of the voyage. Let my reader place a chronology of this business on the July 2nd of 1620, and know that the faithful pastor of this people immediately sent after them a pastoral letter a letter filled with holy counsels to them to settle their peace with God in their own consciences by an exact repentance of all sin whatsoever, that so they might more easily bear all the difficulties that were now before them, and then to maintain a good peace with one another, and beware of giving or taking offenses, and avoid all discoveries of a touchy humor, but use much brotherly forbearance, where, by the way, he had this remarkable observation. In my own experience, few or none have been found that sooner give offense than those that easily take it. Neither have they ever proved sound and profitable members of societies 
who have nourished this touchy humor, is also to take heed of a private spirit, and all retiredness of mind in each man for his own proper advantage, and likewise to be careful that the house of God, which they were, might not be shaken with unnecessary novelties or oppositions, which letter afterwards produced most happy fruits among them. On August 5th, 1620, they set sail from Southampton. But if it shall, as I believe, it will afflict my reader to be told what heartbreaking disasters befell them in the very beginning of their undertaking. Let them glorify God who carried them so well through their greater affliction. They were by bad weather twice beaten back before they came to the land's end. But it was judged that the badness of the weather did not retard them so much as the deceit of a master who, grown sick of the voyage, made such pretenses about the leakiness of his vessel that they were forced at last wholly to dismiss that lesser ship from their service. Being now all stowed into one ship, on the 6th of September they put to sea, but they met with such terrible storms that the principal persons on board had serious deliberations upon returning home again. However, after long beating upon the Atlantic Ocean, they fell in with the land at Cape Cod, about the ninth of November following, where going on shore they fell upon their knees with many and hearty praises to God, who had been their assurance, when they were afar off upon the sea, and was to be further so now that they were come to the ends of the earth. But why at this cape? Here was not the port which they intended. This is not the land for which they had provided. There was indeed a most wonderful providence of God over a pious and a praying people in this disappointment. The most crooked way that ever was gone, even that of Israel's pre-recognition through the wilderness, may be called a right way. Such was the way of this little Israel now going into a wilderness. Their design was to have sat down somewhere about the Hudson's River. But some of their neighbors in Holland having a mind themselves to settle a plantation there, secretly and sinfully contracted with the master of the ship, employed for the transportation of these our English exiles by a more northerly course to put a trick upon them. It was in the pursuance of this plot that not only the goods but also the lives of all on board were now hazarded by the ships falling among the shoals of Cape Cod, where they were so entangled among the dangerous breakers, thus late in the year that the company got at last into the Cape Harbor, broke off their intentions of going any further. And yet, behold the watchful providence of God over them that seek him. His false dealing proved a safe dealing for the good people against whom it was used. Had they been carried according to their desire to the Hudson River, the Indians in those parts were at this time so many and so mighty, and so sturdy, that in all probability all this little feeble number of Christians had been massacred by these bloody savages, as not long after some others were, whereas the good hand of God now brought them to a country wonderfully prepared for their entertainment by a sweeping mortality that had lately been among the natives. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work you did in their days and the times of old, how they drave out the heathen with your hand and planted them, how you did afflict the people and cast them out. The Indians in these parts had newly, even about a year or two before, been visited with such a prodigious pestilence as carried away not a tenth, 
but nine parts of ten, yea, to said nineteen of twenty among them, so that the woods were almost cleared of those pernicious creatures to make room for a better growth. It is remarkable that a Frenchman who not long before these transactions had by a shipwreck been made a captive among the Indians of this country did, as the survivors reported, just before he died in their hands, tell those tawny pagans that God being angry with them for their wickedness would not only destroy them all, but also people the place with another nation which would not live after their brutish manners. Those infidels then blasphemously replied, God could not kill them, which blasphemous mistake was confuted by an horrible and unusual plague, in which they were consumed in such vast multitudes that our first planters found the land almost covered with their unburied carcasses and they that were left alive were smitten into awful and humble regards of the English by the terrors which the remembrance of the Frenchman's prophecy had imprinted on them. Inexpressible the hardships to which his chosen generation was now exposed. Our Savior once directed his disciples to deprecate a flight in the winter, but these disciples of our Lord were now arrived at a very cold country, in the beginning of a rough and bleak winter. The sun was withdrawn into Sagittarius whence he shot the penetrating arrows of cold, feathered with nothing but snow and pointed with hail, and the days left him to behold the frost-bitten and weather-beaten face of the earth were grown shorter than the nights, wherein they had yet more trouble to get shelter from the increasing injuries of the frost and weather. It was a relief to those primitive believers who were cast on the shores at Malta that the barbarous people showed them no little kindness because of the present rain and because of the cold. But these believers in our primitive times were more afraid of the barbarous people among whom they were now cast than they were of the rain or cold. These barbarians were at the first so far from accommodating them with bundles of sticks to warm them that they let fly other sorts of sticks, that is to say arrows, to wound them in the very looks and shouts of those grim savages, had not much less of terror in them than if they had been so many devils. It is not long since I composed this remove of our fathers to that of Abraham, in which I must now add that if our father Abraham called out of Ur, had been directed to the deserts of Arabia, instead of the land flowing with milk and honey, the trial of his faith had been greater than it was. But such was the trial of the faith of these holy men, who followed the call of God into deserts full of dismal circumstances. All this they cheerfully underwent, and hoped that they should settle the worship and order of the gospel, and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in these regions, and that thus, enlarging the dominion, they should by this so merit the protection of the crown of England, as to be never abandoned to any further persecutions from any party of their fellow subjects for their conscientious regards to the Reformation. Finding at their first arrival that what other powers they had were made useless by the undesigned place of their arrival, they did, as the light of nature itself directed them, immediately into the harbor, sign an instrument as a foundation of their future and needful government, in which, declaring themselves the loyal subjects of the crown of England, they combined into a body politic, 
in solemnly engaged submission and obedience to the laws, ordinance, acts, and constitutions and officers that from time to time should be thought most convenient for the general good of the colony. This was done on November 11, 1620, and they chose one Mr. John Carver, a pious and prudent man, their governor. Thereupon they sent ashore to look for a convenient seat for their intended habitation. And while the carpenter was fitting of their shallop, sixteen men tendered themselves to go by land on the discovery. Accordingly, on November 16, 1620, they made a dangerous adventure, following five Indians whom they spied flying before them into the woods for many miles, from whence after two or three days' ramble they returned with some ears of Indian corn, which were an eshko for their company, but with a poor and small encouragement as to any situation. When the shallop was fitted, about thirty more went in it upon a further discovery, who prospered little more than only to find a little Indian corn, and bring to the company some occasions of doubtful debate whether they should here fix their stakes. Yet these expeditions on discovery had this one remarkable smile of heaven upon them, that being made before the snow covered the ground, they met with some Indian corn, for which twas their purpose honestly to pay the natives on demand. And this corn served them for seed in the spring following, which else they had not been seasonably furnished with so that it proved in effect their deliverance from the terrible famine. The month of November being spent in many supplications to Almighty God and consultations one with another about the direction of their course, at last on December 6, 1620, they manned a shallop with about eighteen or twenty hands and went out upon a third discovery. So bitterly cold was the season that the spray of the sea lighting on their clothes glazed them with an immediate congelation, yet they kept cruising about the bay of Cape Cod, and that night they got safe down the bottom of the bay. There they landed, and there they tarried that night, and unsuccessfully ranging about all the next day, at night they made a little barricado of boughs and logs, in which the most weary slept. The next morning, after prayers, they suddenly were surrounded with a crew of Indians who let fly a shower of arrows among them, whereat our distress handful of English, happily recovering their arms, which they had laid by from the moisture of the weather, they vigorously discharged their muskets upon the savages, who astonished at the strange effects of such a dead doing things as powder and shot, fled apace into the woods but not one of ours was wounded by the Indian arrows that flew like hell about their ears and peered through a number of their coats, for which they returned their solemn thanks to God their Savior, and they called the place by the name of the First Encounter. From hence they coasted along till an horrible storm arose, which tore their vessel at such a rate and threw them into the midst of such dangerous breakers. It was reckoned little short of a miracle that they escaped alive. In the end they got under the lee of a small island, where going ashore they kindled fires for their succor against the wet and cold. It was the morning before they found it was an island, whereupon they rendered their praises to him that hitherto had helped them, and the day following, which was the Lord's day, the difficulties now upon them did not hinder them from spending it in the devout and pious exercises of a sacred rest. On the next day they sounded the harbor, 
and found it fit for shipping, they visited the mainland also and found it accommodated with pleasant fields and brooks, whereof they carried an encouraging report to their friends on board. So they resolved that they would here pitch their tents and selling up to the town of Plymouth, as with an hopeful prolepsis, my reader shall now call it for otherwise by the Indians, twas called Patuxet. On the twenty-fifth day of December they began to erect the first house that ever was in that memorable town and house for the general entertainment of their persons and estates. And yet it was not long before an unhappy accident burnt to the ground their house, in which some of their principal persons then lay sick, who were forced nimbly to fly out of the fired house, or else they had been blown up with a powder then lodged there. After this they soon went upon the building of more little cottages, and upon the settling of good laws for the better governing of such as were to inhabit those cottages. They then resolved that until they could be further strengthened in their settlement, by the authority of England, they would be governed by rulers chosen from among themselves, who were to proceed according to the laws of England as near as they could in the administration of their government, and such other bylaws as by common consent should be judged necessary for the circumstances of the plantation. If the reader would know how these good people fared, the rest of the melancholy winter, let him know that besides the exercises of religion, with other work enough, there was a care of the sick to take up no little part of their time. It was the most heavy trial of their patience in which they were called the first winter of this their pilgrimage, and enough to convince them and remind them that they were but pilgrims. The hardships which they encountered were attended with and productive of deadly sicknesses, which in two or three months carried off more than half their company. They were but meanly provided against these unhappy sicknesses, but there died sometimes two, sometimes three in a day, till scarce fifty of them were left alive. And of those fifty, sometimes there were scarce five well at a time to look after the sick. Yet their profound submission to the will of God, their Christian readiness to help one another, accompanied with a joyful assurance of another and better world, carried them cheerfully through the sorrows of this mortality, nor was there heard among them a continual murmur against those who had by unreasonable impositions driven them into all these distresses. And there was this remarkable providence further in the circumstances of this mortality, that if a disease had not more easily fetched so many of this number away to heaven, a famine would probably have destroyed them all before their expected supplies from England were arrived. But what a wonder was it that all the bloody savages far and near did not cut off this little remnant. If he that has once muzzled the lions ready to devour the man of desires had not admirably, I had almost said miraculously, restrained them, these had been all devoured. But this people of God were come into a wilderness to worship him, and so he kept their enemies from such attempts as would otherwise have soon annihilated this poor handful of men thus far already diminished. They saw no Indians all the winter long, but such as at the first sight always ran away. Yea, they quickly found that God had so turned the hearts of these barbarians as more to fear than to hate his people thus cast among them. The blessed people was as a little flock of kids, while there were many nations of Indians left still, 
as kennels as wolves in every corner of the country. Yet the little flock suffer no damage by those rabid wolves. We may and should say, this is the Lord's doing, tis marvelous in our eyes. But among the many causes to be assigned for it, one was this. It was afterwards by them confessed that upon the arrival of the English in these parts, the Indians employed their sorcerers, whom they call Powwaws, like Balaam to curse them, and let loose their demons upon them to shipwreck them, to distract them, to poison them, or any way to ruin them. All the noted Powwaws in the country spent three days together in diabolical conjurations, to obtain the assistance of the devils against the settlement of these are English. But the devils at length acknowledged to them that they could not hinder those people from their becoming the owners and masters of the country, whereupon the Indians resolved upon a good correspondence with our newcomers, and God convinced them that there was no enchantment or divination against such a people. The doleful winter broke up sooner than was usual, but our crippled planters were not more comforted with the early advance of the spring than they were surprised with the appearance of two Indians who in broken English bade them welcome English men. It seems that one of these Indians had been in the eastern parts of New England, acquainted with some of the English vessels that had been formerly fishing there, but the other of the Indians, and he from whom they had most of service, was a person provided by the very singular providence of God for that service. A most wicked shipmaster, being on this coast a few years before, had wickedly spirited away more than twenty Indians, whom having enticed them aboard, he presently stowed them under hatches and carried them away to the straits, where he sold as many of them as he could for slaves. This avaricious and pernicious felony laid the foundation of the grievous annoyances to all the English endeavors of settlements especially in the northern parts of the land, for several years ensuing. The Indians would never forget or forgive this entry. But when the English afterwards came upon this coast in their fishing voyages, they were still assaulted in a hostile manner to the killing and wounding of many poor men by the angry natives in revenge of the wrong that had been done them. And some intended plantations here were by this utterly nipped in the bud. But her good God so ordered it that one of the stolen Indians, called Squanto, had escaped out of Spain into England, where he lived with one Mr. Slaney, from whom he had found a way to return into his own country, being brought back by one Mr. Dermer about a half a year before our honest Plymouthians were cast upon this continent. This Indian, with the other, Having received much kindness from the English, who he saw generally condemned the man that first betrayed him, now made to the English a return of that kindness, and being by his acquaintance with the English language, fitted for a conversation with them, he very kindly informed them of the present condition of the Indians, instructed them in the way of ordering their corn, and acquainted them with many other things which it was necessary for them to understand. But Squano did for them a yet greater benefit than all this, for he brought Massasoit, the chief Sakim or prince of the Indians, within many miles, with some scores of his attenders, to make our people a kind visit, the issue of which visit was that Massasoit not only entered into a firm agreement of peace with the English, but also they declared and submitted themselves to be subjects of the king of England, 
although they declared and submitted themselves to be subjects of the king of England, into which peace and subjection many other Thakims quickly after came, in a most voluntary manner that could be expressed. It seems this unlucky Squanto, having told his countrymen how easy it was for so great a monarch as King James to destroy them all, if they should hurt any of his people, he went on to terrific them with a ridiculous story, which they believed that this people kept a plague in a cellar where they kept their powder, and could at their pleasure let it loose to make such havoc among them as the distemper had already made among them a few years before. Thus was the tongue of a dog made useful to a feeble and sickly Lazarus. Moreover, our English guns, especially the great ones, made a formidable report among these ignorant Indians, in the hopes of enjoying some defense by the English against the potent nation of Narragansett Indians, now at war with these, made them yet more to court our friendship. This very strange disposition of things is extremely advantageous to our distressed planters, and who sees not in this a special providence of the God who disposes all things.